Lord God, we look to you this morning. We stand in awe that we get to be uh, confronted by the words of God sent not to harm us, but to help us, to heal us, to cause us to have a blessed life. So, Father God, give us ears that can hear truly what the Spirit is saying, especially regarding this whole idea of having a a right attitude about suffering for our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So here in First Peter, it's the first century, and we are in modern-day uh, Turkey, and it's been 30 years since the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and the gospel is spread remarkably by the power of the Holy Spirit in just 30 years Almost the entire Roman Empire has been evangelized. There are churches everywhere. And uh, this is the good news. The bad news is that the gospel comes into a dark world that isn't uh, naturally inclined toward absolute truth and loving the Lord. And so uh, there's a lot of pushback. And so Christians are being persecuted. And that's the theme of First Peter. Peter uh, is... Uh, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he picks up his pen to encourage uh, Christians there uh, who are being persecuted severely to encourage them and and to um, give them wisdom on how uh, they should live in this life. And really the idea is that no matter what we're going through, it's worth it because it involves serving the Lord and that uh, we are to always respond uh, graciously and in a beautiful way to maintain a compelling witness for Christ, which means that people could look at our lives, how we respond, uh, especially in adversity, when we respond in graciousness and kindness, when we're, treat when we're being mistreated, that that really preaches a powerful sermon to their heart. And really, the Bible says it heaps coals of conviction upon them, that there's a God and that they're drawn to him by the way we behave, when we behave beautifully and humble and gracious. So the big idea here as we get underway with chapter 4 uh, is that suffering for believers is just plain inevitable. It comes with part of the package. It is uh, if you are going to be entering the kingdom of heaven at all, you must endure hardship. That is the message of the Bible. It's not always. Uh, there's unspeakable joys and glories that we can't even put into words. We're being reconciled to God and his love, forgiveness of all of our sins, going to heaven. Oh my goodness, a lot of good stuff. But with it comes some seasonal uh, sufferings as a result of our faith, both inner conflicts and outer conflicts in this world. And that's really the theme here of First Peter. And Peter says, uh, there are things that you can do, there are attitudes, Christian, uh, that you can embrace, behaviors to incorporate in your life that, that will be a great help to you who have these inner conflicts and these outer uh, stressful situations because of your faith. Verse 1 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ, your master, he suffered in his body, in his life, arm yourself also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Verse 2, as a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for himself for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Verse 3. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans, it means unbelievers, it just means people outside of the faith, uh, secular people, pagans choose to do. Haven't you spent enough time in wild living and lust and drunkenness, carousing, sexual immorality, and all of that, and all kind of detestable idolatry is anything that takes the place of God in our hearts and lives. Verse 4, 
They think it's strange that you don't continually plunge with them into the same flood of dis dissipation, if I can say that word, is just that moral kind of whirlpool of uh, corruption, moral corruption. And so they heap abuse on you. But they're going to have to answer to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Uh, thankfully, we are going to cover that verse so that it will make sense to you soon. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. That is one of the most shocking and most uh, frequently said things in the New Testament. Therefore, be clear-minded in light of the apocalypse that's bearing down on us. You see the signs given. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray your relationship with God. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift God has given that you've received to serve others in the church. And believers, build them up, encourage them with your unique gifting, faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. There's so many ways God has made us able to encourage one another. Uh, for example, verse 11, if anyone's speaking for the Lord, uh, prophesying or proclaiming the word or preaching or evangelizing or praying or exhorting, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If your gift is serving, and there's a, <laughs> such a variety of gifts that fall under the umbrella, umbrella, umbrella. I'm from the south apparently and we just say umbrella whatever umbrella of serving uh, he says if anyone serves in any capacity do it with the strength that God provides so you don't burn yourself out and try to do it yourself so that in all things God may be praised it's not about you and your special ability you know uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Those are the verses for our consideration uh, this morning. And here's what he's saying. Peter's saying, in light of the condition of the world, the biblical revelation of things to come, that we all know there's a book of revelation that uh, foretells the end of the world as we know it. And he's saying that thing's creeping up on us. And he's saying, in light of that, how should we be living? Then we can uh, take the suffering that comes with being a Christian. We can endure it well because we know things. It's temporary compared to all eternity. We're going to be in eternity, you know, whether we go to him or he comes to us rather quickly, right? And, and then never again to suffer. So our suffering is limited in scope. God is protecting us and using it uh, for his goodness. And uh, it is uh, something that we can endure. It'll be worth living for God. Every single struggle inwardly and that we get in this world a little pushback because we're believers, uh, it will be worth it. When we see him face to face, and then they, the opposition, will realize, oh, oh my goodness, that's why they were that way. Ah, it'll make sense, but for some of them, it'll be too late to be helpful to them. So let's dive in here. Uh, the, just let me give you, if you're taking notes, the... Um, the flow of the thoughts from 1 through 11, in the first uh, couple verses, we're going to hear about a biblical attitude, a proper biblical mindset about suffering. How should we think about suffering? And then uh, the next two verses, 3 and 4, it's understanding what's behind the hostility and the antagonism in people when we share the gospel or simply live out our Christian lives. What's that problem? Where's that coming from? Because uh, that's uh, the second flow there. The third flow, five and six, uh, really the awesome motivation to stay the course of so that shout out 
to the apocalypse. There's just nothing like the end of the world <laughs> to bring one's priorities into focus, uh, I would say biblically. And then the last, he rounds out his thoughts in verses 7 through 11 with, okay, we've talked about how to deal with all of the outward um, distress from the world that gives us problems. Now let's talk about in the meantime, while we're waiting for God's son from heaven, what we should be doing to safeguard the, the, our own Christian health and the well-being of the church. And then he gives four exhortations. He says, uh, while, while you're dealing with the world and living your Christian lives and going about your business, there are four things really important that you guys should be doing. And then he lists them. And then, uh, yeah, then we'll be done. All right, so let's get to the proper mindset of uh, uh, suffering, biblical, a biblical understanding. So Christians never go, why is this happening to me, you know? And, uh, you know, after all I've been through, and we don't, that's not a biblical way of thinking about suffering because you're a Christian. And so he points out, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourself, arm yourself. Look at that in your verse. Arm yourself with the right attitude. What is he saying? He's saying the right attitude about suffering will protect you. It will arm you. It, it, you know, To be armed is to have a firearm in the top dresser drawer of your nightstand there, whatever, to protect you. And he's saying a right attitude toward Christian suffering is like having a firearm in your heart so that when the devil comes or the world comes or your own sinful heart comes against the idea, oh, you know what? You should just give up. This is Christian life. It's too hard. Look at that. Do you want everybody to hate you and call you backwards and a hater and intolerant? You know, you can be cool. Just water it down a little bit. No, no, you take out the gun and you shoot that thing out of the sky and you say, no, thank you because I'm walking the straight and narrow path. I've been on the wide road that leads to destruction and God graciously <laughs> transferred me from the, the, the plummeting to my uh, demise eternally uh, to life eternal and everlasting. So yeah, to have the proper mindset to be forewarned is to be forearmed, you see. There's nothing like uh, adversity at blindsiding sighting you uh, to really unravel you. You didn't see it coming. Then, but, but if you see it coming, you know it's coming, you expect it's coming, it's a normative part of your life. Okay, we're ready for it. That's why Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. And in me, you can have peace. But heads up, heads up. Uh, for example, we were in Miami getting ready to take off for Peru last week or whenever it was. And uh, the captain comes on with announcements and he, and he mentions, he says, so folks, it's going to be a smooth ride to Peru. Uh, however, somewhere around P Panama, uh, there's going to be some turbulence, choppy air. You're going to get some bumps, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I fell asleep, but I woke up to boom, 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 boom. You know, I hate that stuff. But you know what? I looked at the guy next to me and I said, hey, guess what? We're over Panama, right? And he said the same thing. He said, I was exact, I was thinking the exact same thing. And then what did I do? I went back to sleep. Why? Because he, the captain said, this is a part of flying in an airplane. And, and, you know, we get choppy air, and we see it coming. It's over Panama. No problem, folks. And Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have a little turbulence. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So Peter will say later on in this chapter, why are you guys acting so surprised when <laughs> at suddenly your friends are turning on you and, and being and they're insulting you and you and you're having to take it on the chin now? What are you acting like? Oh no, what uh, what's happening? He says, Don't do that. Have a proper attitude. And 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 here it is. He says, Jesus, since Christ suffered in his life. He suffered in his life, and boy, did he. He says, look, Jesus, for the love of us, for the joy set before him, 
he endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. So what is he saying? He's saying he saw the end, but he knew in the salvation process of rescuing us, there was a price to pay. There was suffering. So Jesus accepted, here's his attitude that he that Peter wants us to imitate. The Lord had the attitude, whatever it takes, to affect salvation and rescue of God's people so that we would have the same idea and commitment to God that says salvation is a messy thing. Salvation in the world is going, salvation when it comes to me is going to cause a mess inside of me, a conflict inside of me with a, a sin nature that's now at war with a new nature and with a world that prefers darkness over light. This is the way it is. I, I can't stand that saying it is what it is, uh, but I'm saying it right now, <laughs> okay? Because it is what it is. And what it is, is with salvation comes some uh, the, uh, a, a necessary evil of uh, suffering. So we are like the Lord. And so he, he says something interesting. He says, no, because... He who suffers like this, inwardly and outwardly, uh, is done with sin. What's he saying? Of course, he's not saying it. We are. Uh, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. That we sadly will continue to sin here and there. What he's saying is the evidence that you're struggling to walk with God in holiness in your heart. That is a constant war inside of you and then at work you have to take insults and all kinds of things like that 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 conflict itself is telling you you're done with your old life you are genuinely saved you're going to heaven because anybody who's dying to those things if you're not dying if you're not wrestling inside with your lust and your greed and your bad attitude and your self-serving ways then do you even have the Holy Spirit in there? And if nobody ever pushes back in your life at all, and you're just one of them, you do life the way they do it, and they love you and you love them, and he's saying, no, 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 the very fact that you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm dealing with this back tug of war inside my heart. And, and at my family, you know, people in my own family are rolling their eyes at me and don't want to hang out with me anymore. He says, bingo, you're done with death. You're done with a life that ends in hell. So you should be glad uh, for your suffering. You see, um, yeah, uh, Wayne Grudem, great theologian, said whoever has suffered for doing right and keeps on suffering and obeying God, in spite of that suffering, has made a clear break with their old sinful life. Yeah. So the drunk is sober, the greedy guy's generous, the sexually immoral person is now self-controlled. Why? Not because we just decided, oh, I'm going to do things differently in my own strength and power. Because the Holy Spirit came in, raised us to a new life, and gave us the power and desire to refrain from things that don't please God and to live in a way that does please him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And uh, that new life filled with joy and goodness and hope and wonder and love uh, also comes with seasonal times of suffering. Now notice in verse 2, suffering helps with the sanctification process. It means sanctification means becoming more like Christ and changing, uh, being morally transformed, right? So uh, it helps us when you're suffering. Uh, is suffering, quote, here, paraphrase verse 2, put, uh, helps us put an end to pursuing worldly passions, selfish ambitions, instead living our lives for us. Like, like we, we, we created ourselves, and we give ourselves breath in our lungs. So we can do whatever we want, because why? Because we're the masters of our own uh, destinies. 
No, well, when you're suffering, you really start to think about God and your priorities. There's, none, there's just nothing like suffering, especially when it's serious, uh, to show you what's really important in life. You know, so uh, back in my chemotherapy days, uh, 21 years ago, thankfully, um, I had just had chemotherapy, and a couple who I had been uh, counseling in their marriage, very young and very immature uh, couple, uh, they said, look, uh, we're, we just had a blowout. Can we come and uh, can you talk with us? And I said, I just had chemotherapy, and I'm not really feeling well. Oh, come on. So they're married to each other, okay. So uh, I I said, sure, come on over. I'll be in the recliner, and you guys can fight on the couch. (laughs) So they came over, and they're bickering. And when she said the toilet seat thing, you know, that proverbial, the toilet seat, I don't know how many times I have that. So, So when I see it up, I just come by, and I slam it down. And I saw him kind of jump like that, and and I jumped. And here's what I said. I said, I got the answer. I got the answer for you guys. Oh, I'm going to solve it right here for you. And they listened, and I said, one of you needs a tumor. You need a tumor. That's what you need. I don't wish it on you. God forbid. But one of you needs a tumor, and then suddenly you're going to have it big attitude change about that guy who just, you know, none of that. You're going to wish you had him around soon. You're going to long for the days I could, you know, see a toilet seat left up, you know, or down, whatever your preference is. I can't keep up with you ladies. (laughs) Oh my goodness, some, uh, whatever. Oh yeah, no, it won't, It, 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 one guy got cancer, told me this. Oh, I could tell you this much. Solve my porn problem. Yeah, the doctor's telling me, you know, I have a 30% chance of living. Yeah, I don't do porn anymore. Yeah, that's it. This is what he's saying. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went my own way. I went astray. But now, oh. I've been, that's been burned out of me. That's kind of the point there. Verses three through six. Please, onegashimasu in Japanese, sorry. Verse 13. Uh, verse three. <laughs> for you have, he speaks Japanese too, so that's why I did that, just for, uh, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what unbelievers choose to do that's applauded in our culture, that's lit up in the desert of Las Vegas, come one and all, because you want to have the time of your life. And here's the lie. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No. Let me tell you what happens in Vegas gets revealed at Judgment Day. Yeah, that's what he's going to say, too, exactly. So let's talk about this. So about the antagonism in your friends who like to insult, or the world that insults evangelical Christianity broadly, generally, and that's us. You know, what's up with that? It's called conviction. And uh, our repentance and the proof that there's a God and the Bible is true is it's lived out by transformed lives. We were all once among them. We were all unbelievers. We were all chasing after our own selfish ambitions and answering the call to our sinful desires. All of us in this room. But we got changed. And now when they see the possibility of change, genuine change right in front of them, glowing right in front of them, you don't have to open your mouth without convicting them of their situation. We'll talk about that. But first he says reality check about those so-called pleasures that you know sometimes you long for. They came out of that, the list of vices. And, and, and it is a struggle, and part of what it means to suffer for Christ is to deny your flesh. That's not pretty. It's not fun. It's painful, and it's a daily process of, by the Holy Spirit's help to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. 
And so what's really weird about it is that it's a part of Christian suffering to die to the things your sinful nature wants, but in reality, you're suffering because you want to do something that will destroy you. That's amazing that we can consider that suffering. I'm suffering because I, I want to ruin my marriage and I can't. All right, I have to stay committed instead of committing adultery or living in pornography or doing that. It's such a hardship on me. Instead of ruining my career, bringing shame on the family, all of those sins are killers. They kill your reputation. They kill your heart. They kill your marriage. They kill your kids. But who cares about the kids when I can go to Vegas and do my thing? And that's what that all is about there, the wild living and detestable idols, uh, these vices commonplace to unbelievers that Christians are called to refrain, repress, and resist. The sad thing and the hard part of being a Christian is that we have a sinful nature still and that once in a while it gets all riled up and it wants what it used to have. And the Bible says you must crucify that every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. Zero tolerance for any kind of worldly passion, however extreme. Zero tolerance. And he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the longings of the sinful nature. That's a quote from Romans chapter 8. So this is what he's talking about. You know, we don't repress, uh, we repress those things. We don't find ourselves. We find ourselves by losing ourselves for God's sake, and then we find out who we are because it's God who created us. We can't go about, you know, answering the call of the heart that's fallen. Uh, we have to answer the call of God. Amen. Amen. And so wild living, partying, drinking to excess, getting high, sexual immorality. These, these are all of the obvious flagrant kinds of sins, but there's uh, hundreds of ways you can sin in, in more glorious ways that look nicer, but are just as deadly, you see. And so, yeah, um, I love the Proverbs. I don't know that I sent it over. Verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Spencer, do I have that there? Proverbs chapter 9. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest place in town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Hey, whoever's a fool, the word means fool, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there that our guests go down to the depths of the grave. Yeah. So, yeah, these Christians that he's speaking to used to, to put the blinker on and turn into her lane. And, uh, you know, sometimes, and yeah, like all of us, tempted to put the blinker on again. And uh, he's saying, so he asked him a question. What'd you gain? What was the benefit? You were ashamed of those things. Now, think of Think past the, the magic pixie dust that the devil puts on memories and, and often uh, you know, cuts and pastes out the memory so that all you remember is, quote, the Bible, the pleasurable. The Bible says sin is pleasurable. That's why you do it. That's why I do it. The pleasurable, temporary pleasures of sin, he highlights that. And then he cuts away the loneliness, the guilt, the emptiness, the shame. Your wife's tears, your kids every other weekend. Uh, remember I told you the story about going to Azure Acres. It's a recovery ministry in Sebastopol area. And I'm a guy sitting on his bed. He asked for a pastor. I didn't even. I don't even know how I got there. But I'm sitting there, and uh, he he says, "I'm sitting across from him." And I said, "Whoa, what a magazine picture of this 
striking, beautiful, striking family, beautiful wife, huge, handsome guy, uh, beautiful kids, just out of a magazine. And he said, and I'm saying, whoa. He goes, I threw it all away. I threw it all away because I like to drink and spend money at the casino. She's already filed for divorce. She'll never be married to me. It's gone and over. Oh, Satan left that one part out. He just got the bling and the bling and the, you know, the high and everything's fun and the loud music. So he's trying to ask them a question. Didn't you spend enough time wasting your life? You're getting older. You're not getting younger. You know where this eventually goes, right? There's nobody escaped. You're going to see God. You wasted enough time. And it doesn't have to be with the extreme vices listed here. There's lots of ways to waste your life in the secular world. It's a moral upstanding Pharisee who pays their taxes and is proud of himself and his self-righteousness. And he doesn't do anything in the list, but he's wasted his life. So this is what's going on here. What benefit did you receive? And so, yeah, he says, now, you know, here's the source of the conviction. They heap abuse on you. Why? Well, your new Christian life, without a word, don't have to say a word, testifies, one, to their error, their immorality of their deeds. Two, reminds them of their rebellion to God and their need to repent. Three, uh, that change is possible. And if you can change, no offense, then anyone can change, right? And so uh, all you have to do is show up with a happy face to Thanksgiving and, and keep your mouth quiet when they're bashing the current administration, as you used to do, when you were godless, you had no respect for authority, and so you would join in, right? But now you're quiet, and while they're bashing the current administration, you're praying. You're praying for them, you're praying for the current administration, because that's what the Bible says to do. And then they say, oh, uh, what's got hold of you? Oh, that's right, John found religion. You know, oh, John, you're too good for us now, man. Oh, uh, yeah, we know what you're thinking. You might as well say it, you hypocrite. You know, so, yeah. Does it always happen this way in every family? No. But I think you get the general idea. You know, the, the guy goes back to, and I, I, I've had this, I, I have, I'm drawing on testimonies from all of you through the years. The safe guy, the safe cop, goes back to the station, and he's not laughing at the same jokes. He's, he's not dropping any bombs <laughs> with profanity. And, and they get pushed back. What happened to you? Oh, you're too good for us now. Oh, yeah, Mr., uh, you know, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. I see, I see. So what, what's happening there is you're a threat. You're a threat. You don't want to be a threat but you're a threat to those who wish to remain in their sins. Somebody who's been set free is an alarm, a wake-up call, right? Now, some people go, oh, thank you, and they're like us because they're destined to be saved, and they respond, and they're like, oh, praise God. Thank you for sounding the alarm. And others who wish to go back uh, to sleep, spiritually speaking, want to hit the snooze. And when they do that, that's not all they hit. They hit the snooze is us, the alarm, you see. So, yeah, let's see here. Yeah, so he says, but, and here's the deal. He says, uh, no worries. He says, uh, he says, for this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, meaning the gospel got preached. They became Christians. The world judged them and in some cases killed them. But now they're alive with Christ. And when Christ appears in his judgment, it's reversed. The first are last, the last are first. And now those who were judged by the world as haters and put to death and whatever else they said about us, but judged us and put us to death. Now the believers who sit on thrones, the Bible says you all sit on a throne and you will judge 
and you will judge the world. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. So now, now, standing before us, those who were condemned in the world, worldwide, Christianity is looked down on. Now we will be the ones um, judging and they will be the ones in a world of hurt. That's what verse 6 means. But verse 5, they're, look, they're reveling, they're having the time of their lives, and it looks good, and it's calling to you. And sometimes you covet that again. But listen, they're going to have to answer to God, who's coming to judge uh, the living and the dead. Let's talk about that. I mean, that, that, that's just an amazing thing. Uh, I mean, when... It will not be worth it to live your own life in rebellion to God and then see the Lord whom you opposed your whole life. Uh, that will be a terrible thing. Every, uh, it's all over the Bible. That is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And that judgment is either going to be an evaluation of Christians according to your faithfulness and then there'll be reward or at the end of the age, the resurrection of the wicked, and they will be uh, condemned. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so I, I guarantee in that moment that you're going to be glad that you suffered uh, along the straight and narrow path. Okay, 7 through 11, we're finishing up. The end of all things is near, and let's talk about that. This is the new motivation to inspire us to keep fighting inwardly and enduring well the pushback in a Christ-rejecting uh, world. And so, yeah, um, he's saying here, your theology ought to radically impact the way you think and live and speak. Or, or it's not even theology. It's not worth a penny. Whatever you know about God and the Bible that doesn't translate into how you live, especially morally in moral regard, it's a waste of time. Who cares what you know? It's how it's affecting your life. You know, if you're still living in sin and you know all about what's coming and who the Lord is and what he requires, it doesn't help you at all. So he's saying, if you know the end is near, and here's what he means by the end is near, because it's like that was 2,000 years ago, and he said the end is near. Well, because from 2,000 years ago, once the church was born, we began to be in the final stage of God's redemptive plan, i.e., there's nothing left on God's calendar to accomplish. God's to-do list from the dawn of time Check, 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 check. Done. When, the, when Israel was formed, they produced the Messiah. The Messiah lived the perfect life on our behalf. He died a complete uh, payment for our penalty of sin. He rose again. He defeated death, disarmed the devil, ascended, sent the Holy Spirit, and filled the earth with a new Mankind, uh, a way to save uh, the world through inhabiting the hearts of his people. Done. What's next? His return. So that's when the biblical writers say we're in the final stage of God's plan. There's nothing left. The next thing we're waiting for on the to-do list that used to be a mile long is now appear. He appears. That's what's next. And so he says, in light of the fact that this is all temporary, that any second either you're one heartbeat away or he is one trumpet sound away, that eternity will be here and it'll be all worth it. You'll never suffer again. So, so endure this well because when you see the end is near meaning the apocalypse Armageddon the end of the world as Jesus said is the end of human history as we know it but the beginning of the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ as the uh, hallelujah chorus put it uh, quoting uh, from Revelation itself and so it's near you know when Jesus says I'm coming quickly I'm coming soon the word means I'm, when it happens it's swift 
and determined and unrelenting, it's going to be powerful and sudden, you see. And what did Jesus say? He said, therefore, keep watch because you don't know what hour that your Lord will come. And then he said, all the blessings of those who are busy doing his work, not perfectly, none of us are perfect. We're clean by the blood of Jesus. Thank God. He's not looking for everybody, you know, oh, I have to be busy, busy, busy. No, we live our lives. We rest in his love. We're we're in because of what he did, not because of our little activity. But he said, when I appear, it would be nice to have you in right relationship and at peace with me. And when he appears and you're not, whoever you are, whether you're saved or not, then it's just not good. You know, he walks, he comes to the door and uh, things are a mess. And so that's not good. So uh, that's the point there. Uh, Now, as for our believers in the last part of the sermon now, uh, as for believers in the church family, while we're putting up with that, while we're struggling, uh, you know the Bible says that our passions wage war against our souls. Yeah, it's, it's not pretty in there sometimes, is it? But the Holy Spirit will always be faithful to give you the power you'll overcome. So while we're busy dying to the sin and dealing with the world, he says, you guys do four things. Number one, uh, keep grounded and clear-headed. Verse seven. I love that because he just said the end of the world is near. So keep grounded, be clear-headed. In other words, look, it's chaos sometimes inwardly, and it's very painful outwardly to be marginalized and insulted and mocked. Uh, but in many countries, their churches are being bombed, their pastors are being shot, and they are being tossed in jail and killed in this world today. So we talk about, oh my goodness, I can't believe they call me an idiot. You know, at work, it was so terrible. You know, whatever. It's like I can hear somebody in in Pakistan saying, well, you know what they did to my dad? They tortured him because he said uh, something bad about Muhammad. He said, Muhammad's not the way to be saved. It's through Jesus. And so they took him down and, and they beat him pretty much to death. That happens to, it happens today. Yeah, so, so he's speaking. Oh, one person came up to me once and said, you know, Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. And after I said that, he came up to me and he said, hate's a strong word. I just, how do I think about that? It says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But he says, that's not really, I said, Tom, the Bible is speaking to the world at large, not just a small, blessed, privileged minority who got to live in, a, in favorable conditions in the world, while most of the world had to slug it out through the centuries, you see? And so, yeah, he's not just speaking to us, because we, we're like, well, nobody really hates me. They give me a hard time. Yeah, but visit Pakistan and Indonesia, Iran and Iraq today. Go, go see your uh, Christian friends there. Oh, no, you can't. Why? Because it's undercover. Because they'll kill us. Yeah, where's the church? I got some friends. You know, oh, no, can't do that there or you lose your life. So keep, keep clear-headed. Here's what he's saying. When you see the world doing its thing and it's hurting you and you've got indignation, you're, you're, you're pained, your friends are falling away, they're giving you a hard time, and you're watching the culture just kind of go down in a death spiral, keep your head. Because instead of you being all filled with apprehension and uh, disgust and uh, retaliation and all of that. He says, you need to be praying, praying for people these and the world and your, your ministries and your family and your relationship with God. But if you fill the reservoir up with, oh my goodness, you know, the sky is falling and 
Yeah, he says, don't do that. Number two, he says, persist in love that covers sin. Verse eight, first thing I want to say is love does not cover up sin. That's very different. Oh, no, no. Love reveals sin that needs to be redemptively dealt with. Yeah, so he's not saying that we cover up wrongdoing that needs to come out so it can be healed and addressed. He's saying that when you love with God's agape love, which is not like human love at all, it can love its enemies. When you love with this kind of love that has no regard for self-interest, only the good of the beloved, when you love with a supernatural love of God, it will cover over all the petty nonsense offenses and ways that we annoy one another and sin against each other in those very social uh, settings that we all do every day that we have to. He says, um, if you love with God's love, you will let go the dumb stuff. So what? You got your toes stepped on. Somebody didn't invite you somewhere, or you you know you got ignored, or somebody said something mean about you, and it came back to you. In God's love, you can cover that over with grace and mercy. You see, that's what covers a multitude of sins like that. I love the um, the proverbs that say this. Hatred stirs up, and this is commentators say he's paraphrasing this proverb. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs in the sense of cutting slack to somebody who 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 you know who is rude or short with you. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times I have seen church and churches get damaged because love wasn't covering a multitude of sins because there was self-absorbed anger and self, uh, selfish pride and a retaliation and a gossiping and slander instead of letting it go. There's something bigger going on than your feelings and your, um, how you feel treated and all of this. Here's what Wayne Grudem said. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action, every glance is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverted delight. I'm telling you what, if someone feels like you didn't greet them or you you just ignored them when, you know, all hell could break loose. You know, and then there's this gossip fest and spinning of families about one thing. Well, they're always like that. They just think they're too good, you know. And the poor person, what was going on with the person? They're struggling. They're depressed. They just got news about grandma or grandpa. And sorry they missed contacting you and applauding as you approached and threw their arms open and the angels shouting for joy, you know. Sorry. <laughs> I get a little carried away. <laughs> and then we let them have it, you see, but not when there's love. He says, love each other with an earnest love deeply from your heart so that what matters, the health and well-being of God's work will be first and foremost uh, up front there. So, uh, yeah, number three, let's talk about that. We're almost there. Hospitality shown without grumbling. He throws in the without grumbling because sometimes we know the right thing to do and we do it with the wrong attitude. So we're, we're, we're doing the hospitable thing and we're like inwardly, oh, I don't know, no, you know. And, and he's like, don't do that because uh, it sort of negates the whole thing. Do it from your heart, or don't do it at all, is kind of the thought. Hospitality, you know, we get the word hospital from it. Everyone around, doting over, taking care. What do you need? What do you need? We gotta get you well, you know. You're, you're what matters most here. You know, that's the idea. It's the idea of everybody, every believer in your sphere of influence feels valued, that there's room in your heart for them. 
you're not just biding your time listening to them talk about something and you're checked out because you've made room for them and you're loving on them and they feel valued. It's really about, he's saying, be a friend. Be willing to make friends, to put yourself out there. Um, Proverbs 18 and verse 1 says, unfriendly people who care only about themselves lash out at common sense. So what does that mean? It means the unfriendly person who just, you know, has no time for people, doesn't have a very big heart that way. Uh, they, they lash out at common sense in that, that God made us to be connected socially. And sooner or later, <clears throat> you're going to need something from somebody. And because you're unfriendly, you don't have a lot of friends and support. So the only person you're hurting by being an, a person who likes to isolate and not be hospitable is you. You're the one who loses out. That's what it is. Last one, number four, gifts of grace. The word gift here, just beautiful word, charisma in the Greek, it just means grace gift. It means you have an ability, a unique ability. It implies every single one of you and me, we have at least one gift from God. Now, what's the difference between a talent, an ability, and a grace gift? Not much. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you can play the guitar like nobody's business, everybody goes, whoa, gifted musician. Nobody questions, well, where did he get that gift or that ability? We know it comes from God. The thing that makes a difference is how it's used. And it's a Spiritual gift. Do you have a unique ability that brings you joy to do it? And it can be turned loose to, to bring joy and edification to other people. That, my friend, is from the Lord. It does not need to be listed. This is not an exhaustive. These are only two listed here. But there's a list in the Bible of about 29 gifts, but all commentators say even that is not an exhaustive list. Because God gifts us in, in ways that makes us strong and in ways that, that nurture us when we give ourselves to do those things. And so, yeah, um, a lot of people are always wondering what their spiritual gift is. But if you just think about what you do that's uniquely good uh, and you, you are skilled at, and it, it, it gives God all the glory. And so... Yeah, you have a gift, so use it for the glory of God. He says, so he pulls one out and he says, speaking. Now, speaking gifts cover a lot. You can be gifted as a teacher. You could be gifted as a preacher, an evangelist. Uh, missionaries use the gift of speaking. How about when you're just encouraging and you have a word of wisdom? You don't even know what you're saying. And out comes this wise counsel from the word. So he's saying, if you're speaking as a Christian to a Christian to encourage them in God's ways, keep as close to the text as humanly possible without a lot of uh, your own uh, analyses and your own um, biases and all of this because you are speaking as if the very words of God. I had a seminary teacher that it still haunts me what he said. This is 30 years ago. He said to all the wannabe preacher boys out there, he said, uh, listen guys, when you get up on the platform and you open that Bible, here's what you're, you should be thinking. God could not physically be there physically. So he sent you and said, I can't be there physically. Say this. And it's made me nauseous ever since. You know, every Sunday I get waves of fear and trembling every Sunday of my life. Every time I have to stand up here because James says not many of you should want to be on a platform with an open Bible speaking for God. That's a quote from James chapter 3. He says, because you are going to be held to a tighter standard, you see. So he's saying, you, Christian, who God's given some eloquence to about something, keep it tight. Keep it tight. And then he says, finally, 
service if you have a gift of serving. Now, we know who you are. We know who you are. If you have the gift of service, every church and every pastor knows exactly who you are. You can't hide. Oh, my goodness, the first time, hey, we need some chairs moved. It's already over there moving the chairs. You know, well, why? Because he's got the gift. And under the umbrella of service are a host of many other ways that people serve the body. Dave Thompson, everybody knows he's got the gift of serving. He went with me to Peru. So as we walk into Sunday morning service in Trujillo, we, I'm talking to the translator, right, getting ready for my talk. And I look to the corner of my eye and I see Dave with the stack of chairs, just like he does here. He's already in 10 seconds unloading the chairs, setting them up, running around, breaking a sweat. Now, some people would say, well, see, that's his gift. We're all called to serve in the same way. However, let me say this. When you have a gift, you cooperate with that gift with blood, sweat, efforts, sacrifice. You work with that gift. It's not like somebody gets this gift and then they don't decide whether they're going to work and strive and, and be prayerful and do all the things that make that gift, that gift powerful, you see. Because he could decide, you know what, I'm tired, my back hurts. He doesn't have to, just because he has the gift doesn't make it. And the same with speaking. They're studying. There's anguishing in all of our gifts to cooperate with, quote, the power of God that works in mighty ways within us, to quote from the book of Ephesians, that we just kind of, the power of God grabs onto us and we just wrestle it out and work in cooperation with him. And so the final shout out is to give God the glory because when you're using your gifts, everybody's like, wow, look at that guy, Dave. It was 10 seconds and he's already, you know. And so he's quick to say to him, be the glory. you got a grace gift from God. And so whenever you look at anybody who has a gift at anything, uh, you give God the glory. So quick story, got to close. This is my final, final closing. Uh, so when I was in high school, when I was in grade school, I developed a phobia of, of speaking in front of people. It was fourth grade. And then by the time I got to sixth grade and then high school, I, I couldn't speak. And I almost flunked out of high school because of it. I came this close a hair of not graduating only because of one thing. I got A's in whatever I wanted to get A's in, but I would not speak. No oral reports and speech class, I just got an F. I just took the F. I'm not doing it, I said. I'm not doing it, I can't do it. I chose the college by one uh, prerequisite, speech. Uh, That's all I cared about. Do they require speech? That's what I was looking through the book in the guidance office. Do they require speech? Nope, not going there, not going there. That's how I chose the University of Massachusetts at Springfield, which I never attended because we moved to California. But that's how bad it was. And then I got saved. And then I'm like, oh no. (laughs) I know what what this means. (laughs) Because I'm like talking to everybody and I'm like always evangelizing everybody. And I'm like, did you know that verse means? And I'm like, oh this, I know where this is going. And so I had to take speech before I took homiletics. And so I, I'm like doing my thing, throwing up, doing, you know, waiting, for, just, you know, and I get up there and I'm all like this, and I stand up before God. I stand up, I got my speech up there. And I'm like nervous because I'm not nervous, right? So I'm like, where is it? What happened? What's What's going on here? <laughs> you know. So I said, okay, I got a speech here. It's actual little sermon. It's it's on uh, humility. I've got three points, and I'm like, ooh, this is nice. I like this. Like what happened to me? Ever since then, it's been the same. Forty years. Forty years. And this is what God told me. God goes, every time you get a compliment, for the rest of your life, you will always know it's me not 
you. <laughs> because you couldn't do it, could you? <laughs> you know? So praise the Lord. I thank God for that. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Because that's the true truth in all of our stories. None of us were very good at what it is you gave us to do. And suddenly, wow, you've enhanced those qualities and those um, desires in our hearts to be helpful. Thank you. You do get all the glory and the honor. We praise you, God, because apart from you, we could do nothing. We, we thank you for the encouraging words here. We needed it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.